Well, good evening to you all, and welcome to the third lecture in the Ralph Miliband Lecture Series on Sustainability, Social Justice, and the Global Order. The first lecture in this series was given by Sir David King, the second by uh, Lord Giddens, they're all titled, and today we have, it so happens, a French knight. So I don't know, it's, it's an oddity, that, that they're, but the, what, the one thing that this marks out, of course, that they have all been distinguished in many ways and served uh, in, a, in an extraordinary capacity both in the private sector and in the public sector as well. Tonight, of course, we have Ian Golden speaking on global shocks, global solutions, meeting the 21st century uh, challenges. Uh, Ian Golden is the first director of the 21st century school at Oxford University, taking up his position in September 2006. He was before that vice president of the World Bank from 2003 to 6, and prior to that, the bank's director of development policy 2001 to 2003. He served on the bank's senior management team and was directly responsible for its relationship with the UK and other developed countries, all in fact the developed countries. He was born in South Africa, took a BA and BSc from the University of Cape Town, an MSc from a really good university, the LSE, and then a PhD from a not so good university, the University of Oxford. Um, he has received wide recognition for his contributions to development and research, including, as I mentioned, having been knighted by the French government for his contributions in this area. He's published many books, numerous articles, but the two best-known books probably are Globalization for Development, Trade, Finance, Aid, Migration and Ideas, and The Economics of Sustainable Development. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thanks very much, David. And, uh it's great to be back at LSE and in this uh, new building, which I think wasn't dreamt of when I was a student. Uh, and it's also an honor to be speaking in a lecture series uh, which is named after Ralph Miliband, someone who I admire greatly and who contributed many, many original thoughts and helped us in critical thinking. What I uh, hope to do today is to provide you with some perspectives uh, on the future and to hopefully stimulate a conversation which will help, I hope, all of us to think about how do we begin to understand systemic shocks, how do we begin to understand what the future may bring. And of course, the future is always uh, unpredictable, and anyone that, can the lights be slightly turned down so you can see the screen better? Um, anyone that thinks that uh, they're able to see the future uh, are certainly wrong. And many of you will be familiar with the financial commentators that up to weeks before the latest financial crash were clearly absolutely unable to foresee what was happening. So we are unable, and I'll explain some of the reasons why we are unable to see the future. Uh, and this problem is getting worse. But it's not a new problem, as this quote from the US Patent Office in 1899 uh, shows, the person that was at the forefront of innovation believing uh, it had ended. And we've seen this repeatedly from people who are very smart and people who are absolutely on top of their game, as were the leaders in computing, as were the people in the patent office, uh, and certainly Maggie Thatcher had MI5 and MI6 informing her when she said this only three years before President Mandela uh, was released and was clear that he was going to become the future president. 
So this isn't because people aren't smart, and it's not because they don't have information systems. It's because of the complexity of change, the pace of change, the way that change always surprises. And so what we can do is simply begin to understand how these surprises are likely to manifest themselves and how we can prepare ourselves for them, how we can seize the opportunities uh, and meet the challenges of the future. But let me begin by taking a long look back to begin to think about how we look forward. And the important thing to stress, uh, particularly for young people today, is that this is a most remarkable time in history. A time unlike any other. And that's, of course, always true, but it's too true in much bigger and more different ways, I think, than has been the case in evolution. There's more opportunity, there's more integration than was imaginable even 30 years ago. And this is simply a 2,000-year sweep of GDP and population. And it shows uh, a number of remarkable trends. Re note that these are exponential curve, uh, growth rates on the y-axis. So this is a period of exponential change in both population uh, and income. But there's only been one other period in history where income growth exceeded population growth, and that was about a 1,000 years ago. A period of great innovation, a period of great migration, a period of integration, a period when the East came to the West, where the inventions of Islam uh, and China were brought into Western civilization, and you have this explosion of what economists now would call endogenous growth uh, through innovation, through creation, uh, through coming new ideas by people sharing their past experiences and all of their past histories of innovation. And then we had great setbacks, and I won't give you a history lecture now, uh, but we know the remarkable period, a period of about the last 30 years, when for the first time again, income growth has exceeded population growth, despite the fact that population growth has been extraordinarily rapid. And this is a phenomenon which is unprecedented history. So I believe if you were a margin looking out on Earth and saying, what's happened here over a long time, you would see this period as a very, very unusual time in the Earth's history, a period of most remarkable uh, development and opportunity. So it's a period in the last 30 years where life expectancy at birth has grown by about 20 years, has increased by about 20 years, uh, and it probably took at least a thousand years for that sort of improvement to happen. Something that's happened in 30 years took over a thousand years to happen. Indeed, it might have even taken longer in many regions. Where illiteracy has halved on Earth, and where the number of poor people living under a dollar a day has gone down by about 300 million. Remarkably, despite the world's population increasing by about 2 billion over this period of time. So these are remarkable times. If you don't like these measures, and I certainly have great reservations with all of them, crude as they are, simplistic as they are, and subject to change, uh, find other measures. And whichever measure you find, if you go to, for example, the UNDP's Human Development Indices, look at connectivity to water, look at other measures that matter to you, and you'll find similar rapid change over these years. But don't be uh, blinded by averages, because of course, for individuals, what matters is their individual experience, and the devil is really in the detail for many people. There's been a period of expanding inequality as well. So while you've had these massive leaps, you've had a great number of people, including what I've termed the bottom billion, stagnating behind, living in ways that have not changed remarkably. 
over this period. And that has led to widening inequality. The Gini coefficient going up very rapidly with and without Africa over this time. And so you get these vast disparities, again, on virtually any count you want to look at, widening disparities between the achievements of those that have and that have not. So the average is a remarkably happy story. The inequality means in that the distribution uh, is, is very, very happy. But still a period of amazing leap forward for humanity as a whole uh, over this period. So the question is, looking forward, where are we going? Is this going to continue? Will this be a period of unprecedented opportunity in the coming years? Or are we going to revert? Or is this inequality going to lead to instability and an inability to manage this amazing resource boom, uh, intellectual resource boom, maybe, that the Earth has enjoyed? over the recent years. And what are the constraints on that? The remarkable thing about looking forward, as you'll see from these UN projections, is the uncertainty, even in things that we used to think were rather measurable. So we used to think, for example, that demographics was one of those things we had a handle on. Uh, social scientists used to think that, that you could project populations out and have some sense. But the remarkable thing about this set of graphics is the range. So we're about here now. Uh, we're just under 7 billion people. It's unclear uh, by 2050, only uh, 40 years away, whether there's going to be close to 12 billion people or under 8 billion people. A range of over 4 billion people. That's two-thirds of the current population of the Earth. That's the range of uncertainty going forward. And this has massive implications. has massive implications for resource use, for economic growth, virtually anything you can think of, and of course for climate change and other constraints, environmental variation and so on. So why is there so much uncertainty uh, looking out? When you disaggregate this by region, you begin to get a feel for what's driving this uncertainty uh, and the growth rates, and you see that the growth uncertainty is particularly great, and that's really the rate. The dotted lines are projections from current trends. Um, the shaded area is the range of expected, with the dark line being the mid midpoint. Uh, you'll see that particularly in Latin America uh, and in Africa, you have a very wide range. But what's underlying this is uncertainty regarding the two key drivers of demographics. The one being fertility and the other being life expectancy. You put those things together and you basically have demographic change. So just looking at life expectancy first, uh, what we see, and this is from the Institute of Aging, which is part of the 21st Century School in Oxford, what you see is a projection of a very steady increase in life expectancy at birth over all regions, plus a convergence between the different regions over this period. This is about three months per year increase in life expectancy. Three months per year. Anyone born next year has a three-month greater chance on average of living uh, longer by three months. That's amazing. It's two years per decade. These are, of course, averages, again, hiding wide discrepancies. In some countries, like Botswana, life expectancy of birth has gone down from 67 to under 40 years over this period uh, because of HIV/AIDS. But that is an exception. The overall trend is massive improvements. Uh, how accurate are these? I think they're rather conservative. I think we will see a more rapid acceleration of life expectancy on average over this time due to the medical changes that are happening, and we'll come to those uh, in a few minutes. There are 
talk of the lucky generation, those that enjoy public health and so on, as being part of this explanation. It's a very complicated story, but it's a story for those of us that think uh, that how long you live is an important determinant of well-being. Uh, that is a very positive story. Of course, the quality of life is important too, and we'll come back to that. The other key driver of demographic change is fertility. And this is where the most unexpected and rapid changes are happening. So those older people that still tend to think of the biggest problem of the world being overpopulation really aren't up with the data. The biggest problem is likely to be underpopulation in many parts of the world. Lack of workers, lack of skills, particularly for the elderly uh, who are going to need those that help, uh, not least to pay for their pensions and to do their health care for them. This is the, the, the uncertainty, dramatic declines uh, in fertility projected over this period. Absolutely dramatic, particularly in the emerging markets, where you get a convergence under two. And in fact, there's now thinking that this might be optimistic. Optimistic in the sense of lots of youth coming into the labor markets in the 40s and 50s, uh, because fertility rates are declining even more rapidly than expected. And you see this in one generation. So that in Taiwan, for example, uh, fertility rates have gone from seven to under two in one generation. I was in Hong Kong recently. Life expectancy at birth is 104 in Hong Kong. Fertility is 0.9. You put those things together, and you have a very serious demographic change going forward. You also have major fiscal problems and other economic problems, of course, going forward. So fertility changing dramatically, coming down everywhere sharply, uh, particularly in emerging markets. And we're beginning to understand what lies behind this. It's women's education. It's urbanization uh, and it's jobs, employment. So when women get an opportunity to do decent day's work, to engage in ways of, of other than child-rearing in society, they have less kids. And when society is able to provide an infrastructure which will allow them to do it, including uh, social security reforms and other reforms, is an absolutely dramatic decline. And of course, this can also be very uneven. So in certain provinces of China, uh, where you're beginning to have, because of selection at birth, which is another problem arising from gen very aggressive gender discrimination, 1.3 males to every female. And that will lead to an even more rapid decline in fertility over time, because there's too few women uh, in those economies. So th these are very dramatic trends. And they're the reason why the population <coughs> graphs are so unstable and so unstable. And they also, of course, will lead to massive implications for labor markets, for pensions, for housing stocks, and so on. And everywhere is going to end up with this sort of pyramid. Those are pyramids that we still might find in the textbooks around the corner in the bookshop. That's the past. Uh, this is the future. Inverted pyramids or skyscrapers. China, by 2050, will have a skyscraper. Virtually the same amount of people at each decile of the population with little peaked cap at the top uh, in the 90s as people uh, die. So this is it, and you see major imbalances as well uh, in, in many, many different uh, gender balances in many of the societies. So this, this is simply up because it's indicative. It's not particularly unusual going forward. And of course, what you do with this when th this is that's where you retire up here, and you have so few people supporting you uh, in terms of your pension structure and in the labor market. Dramatic implications for labor markets. And that's why 
I said a few minutes ago, people will be worrying about underpopulation, not overpopulation uh, in the future, certainly based on economic and social factors. Climate change, of course, a different story. Could migration solve this problem? Uh, perhaps in certain localities, at certain times, but not in aggregate, because the scale of possible migration is simply too small relative to the scale of the deficits in labor markets which will be coming up. This, the orders of magnitude are insufficient. So this is, for example, rich countries, labor markets, uh, number of workers going down from about 800 million to uh, 650 migration. You could maybe imagine 100 million migrants. That would be four or five times current levels. Um, but it's difficult to imagine migrant levels which are 10 or 20 times current levels. And of course, the other part of the question is where will the migrants come from? Because their societies will also be demanding laborers uh, much more aggressively. So the ability of, or the desire of people to migrate will be changing dramatically over time. Indeed, we're already seeing that uh, over time with the net health migration, for example, of Poles from the UK. So a trend likely to continue. So a lot of the migrant debates we have now, over time, are rapidly going to begun uh, very, very different uh, discussions regarding migration will be very different. I personally believe that migration is absolutely vital, particularly for endogenous growth, for the reasons I hinted at earlier. Looking east uh, to India and China over the long term, this is predicted to be, by most commentators, and I certainly would be one of them, an area of continuing wonderful uh, opportunity and growth. Um, these are the World Bank projections actually produced when I was there, so they're out of date. Uh, but the baselines are rather similar. This is 2010 uh, and 20, between 2010 and 2030 growth rates, base and high projection. And you see projections of around 5 to 8% um, for India and China. Uh, will the current crisis affect this dramatically? I don't think so. These are long-term projections. I don't think they change these fundamental long-term trends in any very significant way. The remarkable thing about this graph, of course, <coughs> looking forward to 2030, is it looks rather like, like the past. Uh, if, you, if, you, if I presented to you what the last 20 years are, it would not look very different uh, to this. So an expectation based on comparative advantage, technological change, demographics, and so on, that the next 20 years, in terms of the relationship between emerging markets and the rich countries, will look broadly similar. They will be pulling the world economy along. They will be the stabilizing force. That's where the growth is going to be, not in the mature markets over this period. This is in part due to this phenomenal experience since about 1990 with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, with the opening up of China, with containerization, with fiber optics, with a whole range of different things coming together to create a supercharged globalization phenomenon. This supercharged globalization has, is reflected on multiple dimensions. You can look at many, many indicators uh, to see this, uh, people moving, telecommunications traffic, but you can also see it, uh, goods and services traffic, but you can also see it, of course, in the investment flows. And these are simply uh, the flows of foreign direct investment, remittances, equity and bond investment, and aid. And what you see, aid has been sort of tepid and bounced up a bit after uh, the Monterey Convention, but it's these other flows, remittances and FDI, which have uh, grown 
in a totally different way to the historical trend. And this has continued very unstable bond and equity, but at much higher levels than before. Of course, when you unpack this, you begin to get a much more nuanced story. Heavy concentration in China, uh, India, and a few other markets uh, of these, of course. But the, the change in trends in these financial flows is remarkable. Now, if you like, take a long view of market indices, and this, of course, is on many people's minds at the moment. What's happening with the stock markets? When will they come back to equilibrium? Uh, where does it go from here? The extraordinary thing about the bond, about the uh, equity markets, is note again exponential. Is the exponential uh, growth rate of these markets over time? These are composites of the whole world over 200 years. Uh, so it's a long view of the markets, and it tells you that if you plan to live to 100, put your money there, uh, because it will grow at an exponential rate. The BIPs are what happens, of course, uh, and this is what's just happened now over the last uh, 18 years, and we're there, so we're back to the level we were in the uh, about 2002, and the, the overall process is not unlike it was in 97. Um, but this, when you look at that long view, is simply a bit down here. It, uh, it doesn't take us back anywhere near the longer term baseline. So equity markets are growing exponentially as well over the long term. Now, this is so we've seen these different phenomena population, GDP, equity. And what underlines much of this is the technological change which has continued to happen and which is accelerating uh, in recent years. So where is this technology going and what's driving technological change? Is it likely to continue? This is accelerating. Uh, it's amazingly exciting, but it also has and raises uh, major questions, which I'll come back to. These are some of the things uh, that I'll briefly touch on, and we've come a long way, of course, from our ancient instruments. I don't know if you can see this very well uh, with the light, but this is clearly time, and this is an exponential growth of computing power calculations per second per thousand dollars. So this is computing power normalized by price. And what you try to see here is what an average person can buy, not what you can do with the world's best and biggest computer. And what you see, because this is exponential growth, is this continuing trend upwards, which has continued uh, since they were first invented. Now, Moore famously said in the 60s that the power of computers will double about every two years. But he also said this will run out of steam after about three generations of computers. He was right on the power the, what's now called Moore's Law, uh, derived from him, the, this ability to double the capacity of computers every few years. But he was absolutely wrong on it running out of steam. And when you speak to the leading computer experts, the working on computer development, they will tell you that they don't see any hard barrier to this. Because as we begin to hit the crunch, which will be in about 2020, of the ability to etch being defined by the constraints of molecular size being so small, they will get into quantum computing, which they are optimistic will happen by around that.
So, and there's lots of other things that are happening as well. Parallel computing and other possible technologies uh, which are coming on screen. So this is unlikely to be constrained, and we're very rapidly approaching an insect brain, and we, this is why people like Ray Kurzweil, whose graph this is, talk about something called the singularity. Uh, they talk about this exponential growth in technology overtaking our capacity uh, to manage it, and they also talk about 2020 being the year, uh, and now it's maybe pushed back to 2025, when computers become smarter than humans. So when you have exponential growth, uh, as certainly the economists and others at, at LSE in the audience will know, things happen extremely quickly. So the new iPhone has a thousand times the capacity of Apollo spacecraft computers for a tiny fraction of the time. Those with the PlayStation 3, um, that has something like four times the capacity of Deep Blue, which was the most powerful computer in the world in 1997 that beat Kasparov uh, for a fraction of the price. Okay, that's what you get when you run these numbers through in terms of the availability, the ubiquity, uh, and the cheapness uh, of all of this. So every 20 years, so you get a millionth improvement uh, in the capacity for a given price, at least uh, when you run this through. And the question is, what do you do with it? This ubiquitous computing power. Um, and I'll come back to some of that. One of the things you do with it is you run data. 20 billion Google downloads today, this day, okay? That's what you do when you have this sort of power. This is uh, one representation of it which is uh, interesting, which is what you do in terms of storing information. The ability to harness, to capture, which way exceeds anything imagined before. So in every year now, this is a complicated graphic, but it's showing a number of things. Every year, more information is being produced than in the whole history of mankind before. Uh, so we get that's one of the things that's happening. And of course, way in excess in a couple of months of all the documents ever written uh, over 40,000 years. And of course, this is again a logarithmic scale, okay? Billions of gigabytes, and way in excess of what we can have in our minds. So the question is, what do you do with it? How do you interact with it? How do you begin to use it in ways that are useful not only for you, but for society? What is the implication of this when information becomes so widely dispersed uh, and so uh, available? Is it going to be constrained by disk storage, which some have argued, uh, and clearly this is very unlikely, and we speak to the computer experts again. The rate of growth of disk storage is even bigger uh, than the rate of growth of information flows. You can find 80 gigabytes, uh, little Stick now for a tiny fraction of what you can buy a one big stick for only a year ago. So this is, this is what's happening in terms of storage capacity and uh, it's likely to mean that at least for the foreseeable future we'll be able to continue exploding information. What, is, what use is this to people? Will this enable us to be more productive? Will this enable us become more effective, able to communicate more, and will this communication lead to greater or smaller divisions between us, are some of the questions we're exploring. And it could be either. There are new invented communities, or communities that have been re-established. 
If you're an Armenian living in Chicago, suddenly you are part of a global Armenian community, which was unimaginable uh, only five years ago, because you have a Facebook book community on that topic of it. So you have new identification, new ways of coming together. And of course, the change is politics, as we've seen in many countries. People communicating by mobile phone, communicating in new ways. The state no longer controls information with dramatic implications for democracy, for knowledge, for who, who controls what you think, when you think it, why you think it. That is a totally different game and will be uh, much more so in the future. All of the results of this computer chip uh, that, I, that I described a few seconds ago. The other thing that's happening, of course, is nano. Uh, this is slightly further away, but being worked on. We have a few nano labs uh, at Oxford, LSE, because it's a social science place, I imagine it doesn't have a nano lab, uh, but we'll certainly work out how to use nanos. Um, and absolutely remarkable. So, uh, one hundredth of the width of a human hair, a billionth of a meter nano. Uh, in that I've been invisible to the eye. That is a nano machine, a representation, with a dust mite also invisible to the eye, uh, sitting on it. Uh, we're building these things uh, in Oxford, and again, what do you do with them? You put them in your bloodstream, you deliver a drug with them, you use them to control connections in your brain, uh, and you can use them in many other things. You can go to Boots and buy sunscreen with nano in it. Why is it there? That's a good question. Um, it probably doesn't do much for the sunscreen. There is a major issue around that. Okay, and that is, what does it do to you? Is this a new asbestosis? These are tiny, tiny molecular structures which are very sharp and small. And one of the things we're doing is trying to work out before they become widely available and uh, used, could they harm you? Is this a new asbestosis? What is the apparent or regulatory environment that one should develop for this? Do you need one? We need to control nano, which we just let people do whatever they want with nano. That's an extremely important question um, to ask because we really don't understand. But we know that these were things which we will be able to control. We will be able to have nano machines. We will be able to run things invisibly around our bodies in the atmosphere. We have nano sensors all over London that would tell you where a toxic material was uh, and enable people to know where things were and to follow things. Again, extremely important. Amongst the many major technological changes that are on our doorstep, and many of them are of course in our labs and are happening, are, are these. Stem cell research, <coughs> dramatic. Uh, we've just created a fantastic new group again in Oxford, but there are many others around the world. Uh, the ability to create virtually any part of the body uh, from scratch, from a single cell. Uh, I saw for the first time in my life a throbbing heart cell uh, and a nerve cell created from an embryonic stem cell. And it was one of the most moving moments of my life. Because if you know anyone that's, for example, got spinal cord injury, uh, you begin to get a sense of what this could do. This will revolutionize therapy. And it's the reason why um, I said rather provocatively to the Chinese when I was in China at the Olympics that I don't think there will be a Special Olympics in 
inequality of access to new technology. An inequality where in 2050, the only people to still have and to live with spinal cord injuries will be people that can't afford to pay for the new technologies which we've been able to source. And that, of course, applies across the board to the benefits of new technology. You can do anything with the stem cell in terms of making it into a part of the body over time. Of course, there are major questions which still need to be resolved, including rejection questions. But this is a phenomenal technology, and only one of many medical technologies. So genetics, of course, and what's happening around genetics is similarly exciting. Tremendous possibility uh, with genetic engineering to identify uh, prenatally uh, sequences, to engage, to ensure that people that aren't born with things uh, that might severely disable them, uh, disadvantage them in future, and that is true of many of these. The question, of course, is where does this go? And I'll come back to it. Are we heading for a new eugenics? And I believe we are. Uh, as these technologies become more widely available, people can increasingly create people in their own, of their own dreams. They can create people who are in what we would think of now as superhuman. But this will not be something which everyone will be able to afford, at least for the not, not for the next 30 or 40 years. This will be something which only the privileged, maybe the Swiss, maybe people in Hampstead, but certainly not people in the suburbs, the poorer suburbs of Glasgow, will be able to afford. Because the National Health Service will not offer this, I don't think, in the short term. Um, and that, if that's true of the National Health Service, it's even more true of the health service in Burkina Faso. So we really need to begin to think about where these technologies are growing and what we think about them, because we know that at least in the early stages of them, they are not likely uh, to be widely available. And it raises very difficult questions, because if we decide, for example, in the UK, that we um, don't want to do it because it's not equitable, but if one of our competitors or neighbors decides they would like to do it because they think it's a jolly good thing, um, what happens to us relative to them? And this applies not only to these technologies, but the ability to manipulate uh, and cognitively enhance people as well. So the potential, for example, to sprinkle something on your workers' canteen food to increase their productivity by 10% will be with us in 10 years' time. If you were a CEO, would you do it? And if you don't and your competitor does, what will you do? And if you were a CEO of a truck driving company and you knew that a high share of your accidents were caused by people falling asleep at the wheel, what would you do then? Wouldn't you see it as a social good? So these are very difficult questions. Questions that need to be asked, questions that need to be understood as we go forward. A bioethical issue of huge significance. So let me turn from uh, some of these forward-looking issues to some of the big risks, uh, and I've touched on some of them. The problem with risk is that it's impossible to measure uh, except with hindsight. And this is becoming more so. So we have all the risks we sort of know about, uh, and then we have a whole lot more, and these are risks which are happening in ways. Now, because of globalization, because of the success of the structure that I uh, briefly pointed at, which has given cause this immense explosion of growth and well-being on Earth. Because of that, uh, we also have much greater vulnerability. Because we're much more integrated than ever before. We're much more interdependent than ever before. 
we're much more complex in terms of system structures than ever before. And all of that means that when something happens, it has a much bigger implication than ever before. So, I live in Oxford. The day after a strike in Portugal, the Cali factory closes in Oxford. That's because of just in time and the ability of things to move very quickly with containerization and so on. But equally, in financial markets, did you see the pace in which the subprime crisis went around the world? That is only because of globalization. The pace of interdependence in all areas means much more vulnerability. And of course, the asset values are much greater. We're much richer than we ever were, and population density is much greater as well. All of those things together mean when things happen, they have very different implications from before. So what's going to happen? Well, you know, as a social scientist, the thing to do is draw a little matrix, uh, and it's everything from something pretty serious uh, to something even worse. Um, like us all disappearing. Now, what's the probability of this happening uh, to humanity? The, the terrifying thing, this is what's called existential risk, okay? The probability of civilization not surviving into the future. It doesn't mean Homo sapiens. There might be outposts of Homo sapiens surviving, but civilization as we know it, not surviving. Uh, Lord Rees, some of you might know of Martin Rees. I think he's the smartest person in Britain, president of the Royal Society, he was the Stromer Royal. Uh, he puts a 50% probability on civilization not surviving the 21st century. Uh, others have, have put different rankings. I don't know what it is. But let's say it's 5%. That's enough for all of us to make this our project Manhattan and make sure that we manage these risks going forward. Um, this could either come from a natural cause, like an asteroid hitting the Earth or something like that. Uh, that's what uh, could happen, and that's what ha has, has led to mass, mass uh, not extinctions, but virtual extinctions of species in the past, or what's called anthropogenic, in other words, we create a mess ourselves, like we blow ourselves up with a nuclear war. Um, it could be either of those two things. Whatever it is, we need to get a handle on it. But in getting a handle on it, the problem is that the data is very, very different and changing all the time. So you have this phenomena which is becoming much more like a physics phenomenon where things just change state. They're tipping points and they're unpredictable tipping points. We also know, and this is hurricane prediction, that we're always wrong when we do complex modeling. And I've been a complex global equilibrium modeler uh, in my economics days as well. So this is hurricane prediction. This is about a, a 50, billion, uh, $50 million a year prediction system, modeling system in the US. Mass technology, the best there is, and it's always wrong, okay? But the other interesting thing about it is it always bunches as wrong. So these are three different prediction centers. They're always too low, they're always too high. Um, they, they, you know, they readjust their models and they get too high, but on average, they're always wrong. So, um, we can't predict a day before a hurricane hits the U.S. coast, as was seen in Katrina, uh, when it's going to hit, how it's going to hit, what's going to happen, let alone predict something much more complex like the global weather system um, or anything uh, of a more global phenomenon. The other, so that's modeling. Uh, 
Another way to find what risk is is to ask people. CEOs love this. They do fill in tons of risk surveys every year. They ask each other what they think the biggest risks are. Their risk officers ask them. They ask their risk officers. They have a committee, and they come away from it, and they say what the biggest risks are. They, of course, are always wrong, except when they're lucky. Uh, they, you know, there's a probability that if you have 10 things down, something's going to happen on that list. Uh, most of this are actually 30 or 40 things, which makes it impossible for them to do any planning. And the interesting thing, this is the World Economic Forum, uh, they also do a global risk analysis every year, is how quickly these things move around. And they move around because people think of risk informed by hindsight. In other words, risk isn't really risk, it's bad, it's yesterday's news. Um, so you know, if there's a terrorist strike, and you ask people what's going to happen, they'll say it's going to be a terrorist strike. Uh, but they don't think about what the real probability uh, analysis should tell them. And this is, of course, what people do. They also think about how it will impact on them. Uh, so the risk I worry about going home tonight on my bicycle is being run over by a car, because I know that isn't probably the biggest risk. And the question is, can we handle multiple risks in our minds? Climate change clearly is a major risk. And you've had two presentations, one by my colleague Dave King, um, and, and none by Tony Gillens, and you have Nick Stern here. So I really wouldn't be right for me to talk about climate change now. I worry about this a lot. I think that the uh, projections are conservative. I think we're likely to end up at the high end of the zone, and I think there are likely to be tipping points. But that is someone who's really outside uh, this area. And clearly, this is a major risk, particularly if you live in Bangladesh or the Maldives or wherever. You know, living in Oxford, I'd love it if it was a bit drier. So that's not a personal risk to me, um, but it's certainly a risk for humanity of a proportion that will likely to be many hundreds of thousands uh, of deaths and the sorts of numbers that Nick Stern and others have outlined. Now, how do we begin to manage this? Is it possible to govern these risks? This is an interesting graph. This is um, from a, a forest group. And what you see is the red is, if you do nothing, how much of the forest in the Amazon is going to be destroyed. Just business as usual, carry on as you are. And this is, if you put in place a government structure to control that very aggressively. And what this highlights is that you can make a huge difference through your actions. This is managing a risk. Uh, there are lots of other ways, of course, to manage the climate change risk. This is just illustrative of one. But the important thing is do it quickly, do it now. Uh, pandemics is another major risk. Uh, this is actually the biggest risk, I think, facing humanity at the moment. You know, we forget that the 1918 Spanish flu might have killed 10 times more people than the First World War, uh, which was happening at the time. We didn't have information systems on it. People, for some reason, have got very, very complacent about pandemic risk. But this has historically always been the biggest killer. We know that as Londoners, uh, the number of people that have died in the plagues of London and so on. But this is not only true of London. Because of this integration, complexity, interdependence, and travel, its implications would be much greater than in the past if it was to strike. So how do you manage this? Well. You do very complex modeling, you distribute drugs, and you work out how you're going to snip this in the bud. So this is an interesting question. What do you do in terms of a drug distribution strategy? Do you give it to the nurses, to the young, to the old, to the vulnerable? Or do you um, distribute all over the country immediately? And this is based on discussions we're having with the British government. 
the answer is distribute it everywhere you can as quickly as possible, give it to everyone when it strikes, and don't try and have a strategy which selects, because that's the way the vector of these pandemics is likely. And in that way, you might save millions of lives. So you can engage with these things. I mean, this isn't the only thing you can do. You can do many other things. But by beginning to think about these risks and expecting them, you can do things. By risks, another major risk. The Canadian government sees this as the greatest risk facing Canada. Uh, it's in this top right-hand quadrant of its risk map. Um, the scary thing about this is it's growing dramatically uh, every day. Why? Because biochemists now can sequence their own DNA, or getting to the point where they can begin to sequence their own DNA. Why would they want to do that if they were crazy? Because they can find on the web a smallpox or an Ebola and sequence it. Okay? So the need to find one in a store underground in the middle of the USA or Russia, wherever they keep the smallpox, uh, is going away. And this is extremely scary. What do universities do? What should biochemistry departments do? Should we screen out people that we think might misuse the intelligence they get? What about DNA uh, sequencing manufacturers? Should we make sure that there's only a small number of manufacturers, that those, are, those machines are controlled because they can be so lethal uh, in what they do? I think the answer is yes, and it's a governance area that we need to get on very quickly. Now, I mentioned some of these health and humanity things and the need for a much deeper ethical conversation. But it's not just that these things uh, are negative. It's also important to recognize in all of these technologies the upside potential. So uh, this is, for example, um, the social scientists here would rightly raise very, very significant caveats about this sort of data. And uh, I only present it as, as one sort of glance at this, because clearly it's a much more complex story. But the basic fact is that enhancement isn't necessarily a social bad. You could deal with a lot of social problems uh, if you were able to give people chemicals which uh, would deal with many, many of their concerns, which might lead to criminality and to other things. So the question is, where are we going? Uh, are we going to enhance ourselves, uh, use these technologies, become more effective at managing them, and manage these big risks, some of which I've mentioned? The ethical risks, the social risks, the technology, uh, and go continue to evolve, as this graphic stylistically suggests, or are we going to go down? Are we going to become this sort of human where we totally enhance, or are we going to stop it? Are we going to be more like that one, which we still are? We haven't evolved that much. And we're still governing the planet in many ways, uh, which don't reflect huge degrees of sophistication on planet's advantage. So when you look at governance in multiple areas, you see um, major, major problems. And the government structure we have now is largely out of date. This is just one indicator. This is displaced people, refugees, um, displaced people, internally displaced refugees, and that's the number of conflicts, uh, particularly interstate, in interstate conflicts, which have gone up dramatically over time. Um, the question is, how are we managing these? Are we any better able now to manage these challenges than we were, say, 30 years ago? So we've become much more interdependent. Globalization has led to massive improvements in the quality of life. There are major concerns because of inequality in access. 
there's all sorts of things that are happening outside state control, including pirate actions and many, many other things. But we have this basically, this extraordinary growth in integrated challenges. Challenges where no one country or one community can be the solution. Challenges where there has to be a global decision making. And these are from the bioethical challenges up to the broader ones of climate change, of nuclear <coughs> biological weapons, and so on. So we need a global conversation and an ability at the global level to manage the planet in a way which I would suggest we simply don't have. We have a series of institutions, many of them coming out of previous crises, many of them uh, at least 50 years old, coming out of the Second World War, which are unfit for purpose. They fossilized institutions. I've worked at a number of them. Uh, I've been on the UN Reform Task Force. Uh, there are libraries full of books on how to reform the UN. Uh, there's certainly organizations who like it is how to reform the World Bank. But the problems are different. The problems are not simply ones of poverty uh, and the sorts of issues that are being dealt with. The problems are much more urgent. They're much more integrated. They're more complex. They require rapid decision making. They require much more legitimacy because they have to be applied much more widely. So you throw the problems and the challenges that I've been talking about into the system and I'm afraid what you get is a succession of crises. So the biggest challenge facing us all is to, I think, ensure that the global governance system of the 21st century is up to these global challenges. On that we'll de determine which way we go from here. Thank you very much.
people to talk about political dialogue and political dialogue and so on. And of course that's right. But in a world that's quickly rebalancing after the end of the Cold War and with many of these trends eminent, we can also see increasing tension, pluralization, decentralization. And one of the things that uh, is distinguishing, it seems to me, about the past two to three decades, by the way, when I sat down, I didn't plan to say any of this, is we generally have a model of change at the global level that one size fits all. For example, the economic models of the so-called Washington Consensus said, if you do X, Y, and Z, it will work for you across diverse circumstances. We now increasingly see, in fact, that one size doesn't fit all. One size global solutions don't work for lots of countries in different kinds of contexts. Doesn't that add a further complicating rich factor? So it's about politics, not just technology, and that's the sticking point. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Are you in the Department of Politics by the time? A number of things. I, I think this is you know, obviously a very difficult question and um, one that I, I have no easy answers to. There's one sort of scenario, and that is that we, that this existing system sort of muddles on um, and what comes out of it is uh, explosive crises and in response to those you get institutional change and that's the way it's worked in the past. The big institutions we see now have been institutions which have come out of crisis, they come out of the ashes of the Second World War actually. Um, and those crises have to really be devastating uh, and I I hope and I work for uh, ensuring that that's not the way that new, better global governance arises, which is out of the ashes of uh, the current system. Uh, and it's interesting to see this financial crisis. It was a brief flurry of discussion on a Bretton Woods II, a new global financial system. And that's already been pushed aside uh, as the existing interests and others uh, have reasserted themselves. And as the economy stabilized, and since the crisis wasn't big enough, uh, to lead to that impasse, although maybe the jury's gone. It's also very interesting to see, and this is, I think, evidence of the point I was making about how technology and globalization has overtaken the system, that the existing institutions, the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements, and the Financial Stability Forum, which were set up to manage the global the financial system and crisis, were unable to predict it, to see it coming. When it happened, they were unable to manage it, and now that it's happened, they're unable to do anything about it. Um, so that is, I think, just, you know, again, evidence of the absolute fossilization of the system. Interestingly enough, the, the Financial Stability Forum was only set up 10 years ago, uh, but it was captured by particular interests. Now, the, the other thing, uh, I think, so that's sort of the bad news story, that it will happen in response to crisis. A much more optimistic story, I think, can be told around climate change, where you see the, the other side of globalization and technological change really driving this. What's happened on climate change, I think, is a grassroots up mass mobilization of people power around the world, certainly in, the, in Europe and in North America uh, and in many other societies, facilitated by this explosive information age, computerization explosion of information and connectivity through virtual communities, uh, the web, Facebook, and other things. Um, it hasn't come out of the dominant media, and it certainly hasn't been led by politicians. They all now have jumped very quickly on the bandwagon and put number one as their priority. But populations were way ahead of them in pressing for them. It's interesting, it's across the political spectrum. You know, so the, the different parties in the US, even McCain was trying to outdo Obama, and Cameron was trying to outdo Brown on their climate change credentials. Uh, 
so this is a very, very new and positive, interesting new development in global governance because it's been pushed not by the old forces but in new ways by new collectives of people who've recognized through the new information systems they have what the threats are. And that is very optimistic. Now, where's it going to go? It has to lead to some structural change. You can't manage climate change by, you know, by six billion people in the world playing uh, with their computers and internet access. It's got to be strict control uh, over it, but hopefully the politicians are mandated to do that. We'll see what happens coming out of Copenhagen and the successor to, to uh, Kiev. So those are two very different models, I think, of the way things uh, will evolve. But I agree with you also on decentralization. The important thing about global governance is not to say everything's got to be managed globally. On the contrary, everything should be managed locally. It's those things that cannot be managed locally or nationally or regionally should be managed globally. So I would start at the bottom up and say only those things where there's such externalities and such needs that you have to manage them globally should be. And I think the ones I've identified are such things. Well, yeah, the audience should now continue the discussion. So um, we've got running mics too. Over to you. Yes. My question is on the, the, the subject of what you mentioned about risk, the ethical implications of something, say, for instance, like uh, nanotechnology, and how it is that in terms of global governance, what is going to happen in terms of the individuals rather than nation states who in the past century have continued to control the whole process? And create a, a more, a more, more um, even playing field in terms of individuals act accessing that technology without being um, harassed and oppressed by the old world order of governments and uh, international institutions. Thank you. Do you have mic? Yes, thank you. Uh, enlightening um, presentation. Thank you very much. Um, my perspective is that there seems to be quite a few, um, well, if you look at the examples you gave, you can regulate a, it, some of those, you know, to, to uh, manage them more, really. But some of those issues could be more integrated, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, whether we need a, a broader way of actually looking at some of these problems, not just, say, looking at climate change, but we look at sustainable development or methodologies for applying sustainable development that would actually hit most of the things that we're trying to look at. So in terms of global governance, actually having a better way of moving us forward into more of a sustainable society. Questions? Yeah, please. Yes, thank you. Uh, your presentation is very good in terms of trying to prognosticate what is likely to happen in the future. Uh, I'm interested about the political implications of all these happenings. I think it was this week or last week I saw something on the press, in the press. A report came out by the National Security Intelligence, I think of the US, indicating that their power is likely to diminish somehow and powers in Asia are likely to come up by 2025 in various indicators, economic, political, military, diplomatic, etc. So my question is, do you foresee a scenario where, like say the next 
20, 40, 50 years, the power of the United States is likely to diminish. And if that happens, what is bound to happen? Are we going to go back to a bipolar world where two powers or maybe three are going to share dominance in the world? So my question is about the associations you talked about on Facebook and things like that. Um, with the, gr the growing strength of grassroots organizations like in uh, climate change, is it possible that we could move towards, that societies could move towards more of a virtual associations being having more strength or more power than a, like a local political organizations? So would there eventually become a period where the associations that I give my, um, you know, that speak on behalf of my rights or whatever, I associate on a, like a global scale as opposed to like a local scale. You, you, you downplayed the, the risk of global warming by suggesting that grassroots movements are going to minimise the problem. But it seems to me that, that the number of people involved in reducing this problem of global warming is very, very tiny. The average person walking down the street really doesn't care, hardly anything at all. There are very, very few cyclists and I myself was knocked off my bicycle just a few weeks ago. You, you, what, what's needed is, is a much stronger leadership, a moral leadership from people who are financially well off, such as people who are financially well off can, can much more easily afford insulation and, and solar power and, and, and expensive equipment which poor people can't do. And if those rich people were to pay, pay, pay for these things and give a moral leadership, then it would be a lot easier for the poor people. But that's not happening at all. Okay, we've got, thank you. That's fine. That's okay, fine. just start with us. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think the, uh, the questions on uh, technical change and, um, and nanotechnology and access are, are absolutely central. So the, the question of access to new technology, who benefits, who loses, does new technology embed growing inequality or does it facilitate uh, the overcoming of inequality is an extremely important one. And then major debates on this, for example, the debate on the digital divide is one of them. Uh, very big debates on these new technologies. Should we be pushing the frontiers of medicine uh, like creating stem cell opportunities if not everyone uh, can afford it. And, um, and this certainly applies in many other areas. Nanotechnology itself is still too new. Uh, it's, you know, is it going to be something like a computer chip which really benefits everyone uh, because it's so ubiquitous in all technologies? Or, which I think is likely now. Um, or is it going to be something which only helps countries? But certainly, I think that issue of access uh, to technology is crucial. Of course, technologies can be used 
to overcome inequality, and I've seen that uh, myself. I engage with that very often, uh, where you can have in the remotest rural areas uh, of Africa access to technology, which, for example, will allow you to diagnose someone's sickness and treat it, uh, because it doesn't matter where the doctor is, you can have virtual doctors now uh, sitting in India or sitting anywhere who can diagnose things from mammograms to, uh, to other things. So there's opportunity, but it's, you're right, it's a, it's a crucial question. I wouldn't like to predict whether the new technologies will lead to widening inequality or not. I think, that, again, the devil in that will, will certainly be uh, in, the, in the detail. The question of um, whether one can have a broader, integrated, sustainable development uh, strategy uh, is, uh, is, is absolutely right. Clearly, what happens on climate change, what happens in other areas, needs to be part of a broader social um, vision. And it, it needs to be something which is about social inclusion, about the way that the economies are growing. And I think there will be a reversion and a revulsion to growth as an end in itself uh, in coming generations. So I think that will be seen to be a particularly uh, turn of the century phenomenon. Be partly because in the rich countries, people will be so rich that uh, they, you know, they won't really need much more. What you do after a certain level of savings and disposable income uh, to, with, with your extra resources. And that will, I hope, uh, push down the, that dimension. The other side is that there will be a recognition that it's ruining the planet. Um, and so that the cost, internalizing the cost of this growth uh, will be recognized. And thirdly, because inequality will be growing uh, more and more widely, people will recognize that that's ethically, uh, morally, and also politically uh, unsustainable. So I, I think there will be those driving forces. How and when it happens is, is an interesting, uh, sort of obviously, big, big battle still in it. The question of the, of the changing power balance Yes, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope the U.S. Uh, gets off its pedestal very quickly. Um, I think it's much healthier for the world if there is uh, a more balanced power distribution. Although I, there are arguments, including from leading political scientists, that actually it's good having a superpower. Um, I don't subscribe to them. Uh, the the it's already happening. Um, it's impossible for, and it depends on the area. I mean, part of what the, part of what's happened in on climate change is the recognition that you can't do it alone uh, for any country, but certainly for the big superpowers. Uh, but it's, it's happening in other areas. There's already <coughs> becoming a balance. And I, I do see a world in which we basically have three superpowers, uh, Europe, the US, and China, uh, with a number of others uh, snapping at their heels, like Brazil, India, uh, Nigeria, South Africa. But what, so what you're seeing now as well in many uh, areas is that inclusion and legitimacy is, legitimacy is very important. So when a very small little power can wreck the planet, um, it doesn't really matter if you're a superpower. Uh, so um, it, it's you know, inclusion, legitimacy, what we define as superpowers and their roles and responsibilities I think will change dramatically uh, in, the, in the years to come. The, the, the interesting question about virtual power and virtual distribution um, and, and is that how the new politics will be formed? I, I think, I, 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 I don't necessarily think it's a good thing, but in the end I think politics is local. 
Uh, information is global, but politics is local. You live in your community. You're affected by what happens there. You care about whether a juggernaut comes past your window uh, or whether uh, a nasty thing arrives on your front doorstep like a pandemic or a bioterrorist or something. Um, you, so in the end, you live where you are. And um, that, that, I think, keeps all politics uh, local. Uh, it, it doesn't stop you connected. I mean, the other sad thing is that you can't really affect something globally, like what's happening in Zimbabwe. No amount of virtual conversation around communities seems to be able to improve the lives of people in Zimbabwe, uh, because there is still no ability uh, to, to engage and do sanctions. You can isolate and you can do whatever you want. But without intervening uh, physically, uh, it doesn't seem possible. So I, I think virtual power will grow rapidly. Information will grow rapidly. There will be no secrets. There's no, there will be no such thing as state secrets. Um, and uh, there will be mass information spread. And people will mobilize and inform each other very, very quickly of things. But I don't know if that's going to uh, get rid of local politics. I think it increases the power of local, as well as global. I mean, this is multi-dimensional. Um, did I downplay global warming? I thought I said I thought those, um, those projections were conservative, that I thought there would be tipping points, that I thought would be at the high end of the spectrum. Um, I simply said in response to um, the question from, from David that I think the dynamics around global mobilization on climate change has been different to the dynamics on mobilization in other areas, and that awareness has come bottom-up uh, through virtual communities. I didn't say it was enough, and I, I certainly don't think it's enough. I think the actions on climate change are not enough globally. But I, I, I was referring to a different dynamic. I'm, I think, as worried as you about the extent that climate change is happening and the slowness of the response uh, to it from all sectors of in view of the enormous difficulty that national governments have in reaching international agreements uh, in relation to climate change, I'm thinking, do you think we need to build on the grassroots mobilization you've described by having some kind of international citizens movement to generate specific proposals for an international agreement on climate change in order to push the politicians to overcome their inability to reach agreement? So, my question is based on the assumption, some would call it a presumption, that power will shift eastwards towards Asia. And these Asian countries are inherently illiberal, according to the Western conception of liberalism, especially China. So will the global institutions we see in the future be inherently illiberal? Or do you believe, as uh, Martin Wolf does, were on the works of Fukuyama, that the only way to govern advanced democracies, advanced economies and societies, is a liberal democracy? Yeah. Um, my question is, uh, what do you think is going to be the impact on the European social welfare state of the new access we will have to medical technologies? You have said that uh, life expectancy is expected to rise a lot, so are we going to have to work until 78 years old to retire and earn a pension, or what's going to happen? 
Um, you talked at length about global inequalities in your talk and at the end of your speech about the fossilization of global institutions. Um, for example, from my own point of view, um, I see the World Trade Organization has failed to introduce substantial trade reform globally in terms of reducing trade barriers to stimulate trade from more from developing countries. Do you not see this as an essential area of reform in order to reduce global inequalities in order to increase prosperity in the developing world? And if so, do you, how, how do you propose that this can be achieved if it's um, I was listening with real horror to some of the ethical quandaries that you were laying out in your speech, um, particularly the one where we were considering whether it would be acceptable for an employer to put chemicals unknown to an employee into their food in order for there to be increased productivity and whether that would be acceptable if another company or another country was doing it. Um, where in this future do you see a role for civil rights and uh, civil liberties and human rights? And how do you see those being affected? And if I can be quite cheeky, um, just a very quick second question. Um, your original topic was the management of climate change and the movement to a low carbon economy, um, at least according to What's this. Okay. The first up over
to less liberal countries. Well, firstly, let me start with your second point. I don't think that the only way is liberal democracy. So, you know, Martin's a friend, he's a great guy, but I don't agree with him on that. Um, so, there's many ways to growth, there's many ways to inclusion, there's many ways to, to, um, to manage societies and economies, and liberal democracy is one of them. It's a good one, it's not the only one. Um, do I think, therefore, that more inclusion of the Asians will lead to less democratic institutions? No. I mean, this is totally, ridiculously undemocratic. You have five countries from who were decided in 1945 running global institutions. Is that democratic? Um, you know, they account for less than 10% or 20% of the world's population, uh, a decreasing part of the world's GDP. Is that democratic? No, I think more inclusion, particularly by the main actors with the main populations, with the main economies, sounds like a democratic process to me. Uh, how you do it, what the, you know, what their votes would be and so on is, is obviously the, the, the detail one needs to work through. That's what all the reform process is about. European social welfare state reform and retirement, yes. I would plan on working to be 70. Um, I would plan on not retiring. I think the concept of retirement age for anyone in their 20s will be disappeared by the time you get there. Um, I think it might even be but I might get there. <laughs> I'm not that far. Um, I think there'll be much more interesting concepts. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. You won't sort of be working one day and stop the next. There'll be uh, part-time working, there'll be teleworking, there'll be um, going in and out of the labor force. There'll be lots of different ways in which the transition from working to not working will happen. If you're healthy and you know, uh, uh, totally active at 85, why shouldn't you want to work? Uh, particularly if you need to pay for your mortgage and your uh, pension and your healthcare because you're going to live to 110, hopefully. Um, so things will change dramatically, and one of the things that will change dramatically is retirement. It's already creeping up. I mean, I might have noticed, I think, for new entrants to the labor market, it's already 67 or something. It was 60, uh, it was 57 when I entered the labor market. So it's already moving. It will move much more rapidly uh, over time. That's going to have very significant implications for European social welfare entitlement, certainly. Um, that whole dynamic will change. It does have a, there's a, there's a, a worry in all of it, of course, when you look at these dynamics. Um, one of them is sort of the, what used to be the, the, the academic problem. You know, before academic retirement ages were enforced, you'd meet your professor when say the prof you were 20 and the professor was 40, and then you you get your doctorate and once his job by the time you were 30, but then he was only 40, 50, and you had to you know you have to wait another 30 or 40 years until he dies in his office. That used to be how academics kept their jobs. Now that forced retirement and um, so this this possibility of progress in the labour market until they can be a professor and I can be a professor, but if if people stop retiring again, then young people are going to get very frustrated if you can only take your boss's job when you're 70 and they're 90. That's going to be frustrating. <laughs> um, so uh, we only inherit your parents' house, you know, when they're 104 and you're 85. You better work out where you're going to live meantime. Um, so things will change dramatically uh, in all of this. WTO reform? Absolutely. Uh, the, the existing trade system is economically completely uh, Illogical. It doesn't meet any economic precepts, uh, or, uh, even first year economics, and that's not neoclassical. Uh, it's certainly absolutely disastrous for developing countries who pay over double the tariffs. It's environmentally destructive. 
There are very few negative adjectives that can't be applied to the existing trade system. Uh, and I would strongly uh, put my voice amongst the many others behind much more radical action. And I think the Doha development agenda is the right direction. It doesn't go far enough, it doesn't go fast enough. It's better than nothing, and nothing's happening at the moment. Um, chemical enhancement, civil rights, and so on. Yes, I don't think I said that, the, that people would be enhanced without knowing it. I mean, they might want to be enhanced. They might get a productivity bonus uh, if they are able to produce 10% more of whatever they're producing. Um, or they might, if you're a long distance truck driver, you might be glad that actually you can take something to keep yourself awake and not kill someone while you're driving after 10 hours. Uh, having said that, um, you do raise, uh, raise an issue which, I, which is right, that maybe they wouldn't know in some places. And I think you're absolutely right that these are human rights uh, and civil liberty issues. I think well, they will lead to new consciousness using the international virtual network facilitated by the web uh, and the, the successful webs. So I think that's absolutely right. And I, I hope what came out of my talk was everything about the future is about ethics and where people stand in themselves and what sort of society they want to create. The choice increasingly is ours and what sort of society we want to create. And the, um, the final point was on... Uh, remind me. Which institution would you have? Oh yeah, that's right. Um, the, the, the question from you, which institution? Um, well, I hope I don't have to choose between existing institutions. None of them, none of, the, the architecture is not meant to be comprehensive. It was, it was designed as a modular architecture which was meant to be different. The most beautiful document in the world is the UN Human Rights, the UN Charter. Well, it hasn't read it, should read it. I subscribe to it, and I wouldn't want the UN. But, you know, do you, if you've ever been to the Security Council, if you've ever been a committee trying to do something in the UN uh, on human rights, on anything, then you don't want to be there. So, you know, I suppose the, the short answer is, let's have the UN Charter with the UN Management Committee that really works. Couple, just a couple more. Yeah, the, the, the cynics say they said the UN with the World Bank of Democracy. Um, <laughs> but uh, having been the World Bank, I can't say much. Philip Cobman, you mentioned the value of uh, grassroots activities, mobilizing governments, but you also earlier expressed your skepticism for national institutions growing out of the ashes of um, different crises. And interestingly enough, you've just uh, praised, nevertheless, the UN in one particular aspect of the world. Now, my measure of, of what's happening on climate now is most of the awareness has come about because of the, uh, the work of the IPCC, which is set up by the UN. And I think it was with their third and fourth reports that awareness really grew. So that would appear to be a contradiction in, in the way you describe it. And I just want to forgot to come back to I think my question is more fundamental because what I think is your your concept of global governance and one world and global issues, new challenges, that's quite good. But the issue that I really feel that will come in, the, in reaching that goal is the 
individual countries that will be participating in that and their national interest. You can see it from the fight for resources that we had in Iraq or anywhere. Or you can see the national interest of crisis terrorism. And I don't see how your concept will be successful in getting other countries together. In this, uh, in this scheme that you painted for the next century or so, where do you see the evolution of the for-profit multinational corporation and what role do you see them playing? Let me, let me just toss two final thoughts to you, just two final thoughts, which might, one might help. The, clearly there's a trend in, in decision-making at the global level, which is neither global, which seems so impossibly difficult, and neither national, which is so increasingly inevitable. And then it's just the G clusters, the G7, and so on. But the newest one, of course, is to create a G20. And the significance, of course, of the G20 is it does represent a shift in the range of countries included. It is a much, much more all-embracing. It can have reasonable claims to comprehensiveness, reasonable claims to accountability. How significant do you think it is? Do you think it's just a lift that, that once the West picks up again, will, will be ignored? Or do you think the G20 is a significant new decision regarding question number one? And finally, just a brief thought on East and West. Some people say that the rise of Asia is very exaggerated. It's, it's, it's highly significant at the moment of cheap, cheap manufacture, where the relatively cheap labor forces in Asia can be utilized for significant advantages. But the counter argument, and one counter thought is this, is that most of the key inventions you describe going forward, significant now going forward and across fertilizer going forward, are originating in the West in American universities, in European universities, but above all in American universities, which are several years, many years, if not decades ahead of others. And that this technology, the nanos, the IT, the genetic research, are the punching technologies that will drive global growth in the long run with serious implications for it. It's just a question. We can have your views to
how is it that global corporations have been absolutely so successful to capture the technology and the opportunity in globalization? If you're Microsoft or Coke or whatever you are, you run a global company, you use the technology, and you can operate in 120 countries and 120 languages, local communities, and you don't have a problem of global coordination or management. You do, but you master it. Okay? They are, this, they are one of the successes of, the, of globalization. But governments can't do that. So there are two sides to the question. Will corporations continue? I think so. Um, I think they're changing, evolving very rapidly over time. Will governments be able to learn something from them, or will there be what this catchphrase, public-private partnerships, in other words, outsource to private sector some of the management of things which public, previously were public? <coughs> That's all the options going forward, and there will be experimentation. The Gs, um, yes, I think there should be G groups on everything. Uh, in other words, different groups, uh, depending on the problem. G20 on something. But the important criteria of who's is membership of the Gs. It's got to include the people that can make the difference. If, in other words, if it's climate change, the big polluters. But it should also include those that are most affected. In other words, it's difficult to imagine, for me, a group on climate change that doesn't include Bangladesh, because it's going to have the most people impacted. Um, so the definition and then legitimacy, do they represent key different terms? But yes, you can't run a global community, and I've been in the meeting rooms trying to see how this works and trying to help it get enough. You can't run a global government in 210 countries. That is just impossible. Uh, you can have ideals, but not actions. Um, and so there has to be some devolution from the global power structure to a subset, and the gene model is is one of those models. The Gs suffer from one major problem, they have no secretariat or implementation capacity, because they can pass lots of resolutions, but they can't actually do anything. Um, they don't have a police force, they don't have a, a regulation authority. So that's a part of what needs to be worked through. Invention, originate, and so on, your last point, um, David. Um, again, I've <laughs> a long time to part to discuss this, but uh, it, there are two questions. Is it invention or adaptation and application that drives growth? Okay, so I would challenge your premise. I don't think it is invention. It's adaptation and application. And I think Asia is pretty good at that. Uh, so uh, the second is, I would challenge the, the, the underlying assumption that invention doesn't happen in Asia. I think, firstly, who's inventing in the US? It's migrants. What share of Nobel Prize winners are third generation or even second generation Americans, a minority? Who's, who drove, who's driving Silicon Valley? It's people from Bangalore, uh, etc. So I think our concept of who's who in this um, particular constellation needs in refinement. And um, I, I also think it's not actually the dynamic behind growth. That, that's simply something determined by which nationality the inventor was, uh, if that did matter. Great response. <laughs> Thank you. Just two things then, just to close. One is to uh, acknowledge the, the point you raised about changing the titles. titles when events leave that start put to bed, it's sometimes months before that can actually take place. We do our best to get titles right for six months, seven months ahead. It's hard to predict the future, and sometimes titles change. So you need to check, all I can say is the events website where there's... It was the same on the website. Is it today? Yeah. Today, that surprises me. <laughs> That surprises me. Sorry to interrupt. No, that surprises me. Thank you for telling me. I'm, 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 I'm sorry to have gotten you under false pretenses. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I really thought I couldn't. I mean, it's not my topic. It's 